Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Let's do this. Hi, this is Chantal Mayer Crittenden, the host of the Parlay podcast. When I started this podcast back in 2019, I wasn't entirely sure how it would unfold. I'm thrilled with the outcome with over 15,000 downloads, 46 episodes, and guests from all over the world. Today, I'm launching season four with an episode on one of my favorite topics, bilingualism and multilingualism. You know the saying, go big or go home. So I decided to go big and invited a prolific author and researcher, Dr. Yasona Sanoz. Dr. Sanoz is a professor of education at the University of the Basque Country. Her research focuses on bilingualism and multilingualism in education, as well as translanguaging. Hello, Dr. Sanoz, and welcome to the Parlay podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. I gave a very brief introduction of your work, but before we dive into the content of this episode, could you tell us a little bit more about your work and how it has led you to study, you know, bilingualism, multilingualism, and the very important topic of pedagogical translanguaging? Okay, well, this comes, well, first I will say I live in Donostia, San Sebastian, in the Basque Country, and I will explain a bit where this is. Uh, this, uh, the Basque Country, part of the Basque Country is in Spain, and part of the Basque Country is in France. I live on the Spanish side. Uh, San Sebastian is 20 kilometers away from the French border, from the area where um, Biarritz and Endai, Endai is 20 kilometers away, Biarritz is more like 40 kilometers away, Bayonne, that area. So we are on the Atlantic. Okay, uh, the language we, we speak here is a minority language, Basque. It's spoken only by part of the population. I will explain a bit more later. But uh, I was, how did I come to be interested in multilingualism. I was a speaker of Basque, Spanish, and English, and I was a secondary school teacher of English in the late 80s, I would say. And then I was teaching some students had Basque as the language of instruction. The, most of them at the time had more Basque as a home language, and others had Spanish. And I was teaching English in different classes. Some for Spanish speakers and others for Basque speakers. But Basque speakers were also fluent in Spanish. So we had monolinguals learning English as a second language, although they also had Basque as a school subject, and bilinguals, Basque Spanish, learning English as a third language. I was very interested in the in the contrast between them because I could see that bilinguals have more resources, um, they could understand some things better because they, they had more structures, because they had two languages. And I went into working on my PhD on the influence of bilingualism on third language acquisition. And that was 
in the early 90s. So, and after that, I've been always working on multilingualism and the relationship between languages, mainly these three languages, but applying to uh, the, whatever, the findings to other contexts as well. That's very interesting. I like how, you know, it's your, your profession that led you mm-hmm. to study uh, multilingualism. That's it. One of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on this podcast is, is to talk a little bit about translanguaging. And again, before we get into this topic, I just wanted maybe to ask you to give a brief definition of translanguaging. And I know that translanguaging has now become an umbrella term, and there are you know, various definitions depending on, on where you are. So for you, what, what does translanguaging mean? Okay, it is true that it is an umbrella term. The origin of translanguaging comes from the classroom, from bilingual education in Wales with Welsh and English. And it was in the 90s that Ken Williams referred to translanguaging as a pedagogical practice that switches the language of input and output. What this means is that, for example, a text could be in English, and then students uh, had to work on a, an oral or written summary of this text in Welsh or the other way around. So a different language in the same class, a different language for the input and the output. So this um, is one way to understand uh, translanguaging. But nowadays, it is understood also in different ways when, let's say, resources from different languages are used together for pedagogical purposes or in everyday conversation. We could distinguish between spontaneous and pedagogical translanguaging. Spontaneous translanguaging is when um, we use resources from different languages just communicating because we are multilingual or bilingual, multilingual. Uh, we are using, we may think that by using a, it could be a, a word from another language, we can express that better if our, if the person we are talking to can understand that. And we use these resources. I mean, we can do it also when we, when we text or when we are talking informally, it's very common to use these resources when we are talking about bilingual people who can understand the two languages or multilingual with more than two languages. That would be spontaneous translanguaging. And on the other hand, pedagogical translanguaging is when we have something planned to improve, uh, let's say, the way we teach by using resources from two or more languages. So there are instructional strategies. It is planned and it is used inside a classroom. Yeah, and I like how you said that translanguaging comes from the classroom. That's where it originated. And then, you know, I think it originated in the classroom and then, you know, researchers took it and studied it. And I know that in many parts of the world, we're trying to bring it into more classrooms and in, in more bilingual contexts or multilingual contexts. And I can, you know, anecdotally, I know that with my own children, we're doing spontaneous translanguaging all the time because we speak French and English and we don't even think about it. It just happens very naturally. And so I try to tell a lot of the educators that I work with that this is something that children are already doing spontaneously. 
And so you did make that distinction between spontaneous translanguaging and pedagogical translanguaging, which is much more intentional. Now, a lot of researchers have studied translanguaging, but I was particularly interested in your work and Dr. Gorter, your colleague, because of where you're situated. And thank you for giving um, you know, a description of, of where you're situated, because I know a lot of people don't exactly know where the Basque country is. And more particularly, the linguistic context that you study. So most of our listeners are, are from Canada, but there are some all over the world. Um, so for those who might not be familiar, there are two official languages here in Canada, English being the majority language and French the minority language. And there are also many other minority languages, including, of course, the Indigenous languages. Now, could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about the linguistic context of the Basque country? So you mentioned the three languages, but how do they compare to one another? Okay, yes, um, we have the, it depends because as I said, part of the Basque country is in France and part of the Basque country is in Spain. So the language, the original language here is was Basque, but nowadays it is a minority language. And in the Spanish part is mainly Basque and Spanish, in the French part, Basque and French. If we want to talk a bit about the number of speakers, we could say that it depends a bit on the area, but it is, um, Basque is spoken, for example, in the area where I live is 33.9% of the population are fluent in Basque, but they are all fluent in Spanish. There are other areas like Navarre, also on the Spanish side, that is 12%, other areas in the French side, can be about 20%. So it depends, but everybody is clearly a minority language because more than half of the population cannot speak Basque, but they can all speak the majority language. And apart, so these languages, in our case, it will be Spanish and, and Basque, are school languages, but we also have English. English is obviously very important all over the world. Is uh, we can say a foreign language, even though it's less and less foreign every day. But uh, English is in the curriculum, and it is even used as a lang additional language of instruction. And then we also have in secondary school we have French as a fourth language, which is an optional language. What we have is different possibilities. Parents can choose to have uh, Basque as the language of instruction for everything except Spanish, um, Spanish language arts, we will say, or, or English. Or sometimes also English is used for, as the language of instruction for one subject or so. Or they can go for a kind of 50-50 model, Basque-Spanish, or it can be Spanish medium. And there has been a real trend to use more and more Basque as the language of instruction. But at the same time, even though this has been very successful to use the minority language as the language of instruction, and that is one of the main reasons why the number of speakers of Basque where this is done, which is not in, on the French part, but more on the Spanish part, and the number of speakers of Basque has increased. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that Basque is used a lot more outside the class because that's a bit like you can be successful 
teaching, uh, let's say, um, Basque, but you cannot influence so easily the use of Basque. So most of the conversations you will hear on the street will be in Spanish, even if you have Basque as the main language of instruction at school. Thank you for that. And again, that's why I, I was really interested in your work because it really resembles the linguistic context in Canada, minus one of the three languages. It's mostly two languages here in Canada, but it's about you know that 30-70 split for French and English in most communities. And here in Canada as well, we have French schools. We also have the 50-50, the more of that immersion context. But um, just like you said, uh, you know, we can't really influence how children are going to use the minority language outside of school and even outside of the four walls of the classroom. Because oftentimes during recess, in the hallways, during lunch at the cafeteria, the children will speak English amongst themselves. Now... The world is becoming more and more multilingual, like you mentioned. And, you know, in education, we're starting to see a shift from a monolingual view to more of a multilingual view. Could you elaborate on that? What does that mean if we're, if we're trying to adopt more of a multilingual view? And why is it important to perhaps change the way we see things uh, in education? Okay. Well, uh, what is happening is that traditionally we always try to isolate languages when we were teaching languages like you have you need to to pretend you are monolingual even if the teacher is is multilingual or bilingual has to pretend uh, it has to be only one language in the classroom uh, translation sometimes try to avoid translation there has been a lot of this monolingual focus to become Indian to become multilingual. But the idea of the monolingual native speaker as a reference has been very important. And so what um, things are changing and they are changing at different levels. I mean, with research on um, monolinguals and multilinguals, the idea that they should not be compared because multilinguals are different from monolinguals. The idea that we should look more at the way multilinguals communicate and, multi and, and the way multilingual people use their resources rather than think of uh, monolingual people who only use one language as a model. So um, there is the idea more and more of going against this, uh, this monolingual bias when we are teaching languages. But in context, such as what I learned from Canada or the Basque country, we have to find a balance between using resources, let's say from other languages, adopting a multilingual approach, and on the other hand, protecting and promoting the languages that are not used as much or that we need to to teach at school and to that they are more in a minority position at school, that it could be like French in some areas and in most areas of Canada, except Quebec or, or Basque in the Basque country. So it is on the one hand, and this is not easy, but on the one hand is to use resources from other languages and not to have 
only like a, a complete monolingual approach. But on the other hand, we also need to make sure that we are protecting these languages and that we are allowing for, for the development of these languages. Of the languages, mainly, I mean, the majority language is usually not a problem, but the minority or the, or the languages that are like French, a very important language, but it is in a minority position in, in some places, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, yesterday I participated in um, the discussion. There's a new uh, resource that has recently come out here in, in Ontario, Canada, uh, which is an initiation guide to plurilingual approaches in school. And so this was in the French school system. And um, the very first thing that we did, and there were probably 30 or 40 attendees, most of them are educators. The very first thing was just general questions and thoughts about allowing students to use all of their languages in schools. And it was very evident that there's a lot of fear Educators fear that students will be assimilated because, of course, students are more comfortable speaking in English for the most part, and some have other minority languages that they, or home languages that they might speak. And so, what could we tell educators to reassure them? Because you know these these fears are well founded. I mean, just like in the Basque country the minority language speakers have really fought for their schools. They've been fighting for their language for, for years, for decades, for, for centuries in some cases. So what, what can we say to educators who fear that allowing students to use their, perhaps their dominant language will, um, you know, lead to assimilation of the French language or the minority language? Yeah. I think that the main thing here and what we work with is mainly pedagogical translanguaging, allowing not just, it's not the idea you speak whatever you want in the classroom. It's the idea, let's use some resources that are available that students have because of the knowledge of other languages when they are learning, because that will be somehow as it is always in, in education, in pedagogy, that you have to link the knowledge you have to new knowledge to be able to make progress. So what we can do and we can be more efficient teaching a language that could be French in Canada or it could be Basque or English in, in the Basque country, if we use the resources the students already have or even with French. I'm going to give you an example. We have seen in some schools where French is, is taught as a fourth language that uh, you have the, uh, the explanation, the grammar explanation about when to use the auxiliary verb avoir or être, right? With verbs that are transitive or intransitive, verbs of movement. You can imagine students in secondary school, fourth language, and they get, um, you know, the, the textbook or a photocopy where it says all the rules to use, when to use in the passé composé, when to use avoir, when to use être. And you say, well, it, this is a bit, it can be a bit complex, right? For somebody thinking, is this verb transitive, intransitive? And then you say, well, why that is the teacher uh, using this as if they didn't know any language? I mean, if they just say, in 
Basque, you also have auxiliaries and you make a difference between transitive and intransitive. Do the same as in Basque. You get, I don't know, but 95% of the case is correct. There are always a few exceptions. But instead of the concept of transitive, intransitive, just use the resources you already have in the other languages you know to be able to make more progress. So it is teach French as a fourth language, taking into account that these students are multilingual and not just that you have to avoid any knowledge they have from before. So we are working that way. For example, we work quite a lot with cognates. There are many words that, I mean, you can find not only in, in language classes, but also in other classes, in science, in mathematics, that are similar because they come from Latin or they come from French. And, or, uh, I mean, or English, French, they can be quite similar in different languages. Sometimes, uh, I mean, I'm talking, for example, if, if you have a, a word like, I don't know, hospital or digestion, I mean, they are similar in other languages. Even, I mean, Basque is a language that is not, doesn't have the same origin. It's different, it's not related. I mean, it is related in a way, it has been for many centuries next to Spanish and next to French, but the origin is different. It's not a Romance language, it's not an Indo-European language, but still all these words uh, are similar. Many words are similar. So using uh, the resources multilinguals have, and it can be also, they can be different words, but they can be words that have the same structure in different languages. I mean, if I say, for example, flower shop, and I say that in Basque, it has the same structure, Loredenda, even if the words are different. But if I find flower shop, and I don't know, well, that's a simple word, but I mean, it's a compound, but it's not difficult. But if I find that it's just, okay, I may, it may be that it works, that is the shop where, for flowers, hmm, that, uh, and you don't, and that you can relate it to the structure you have in, in other languages. But this can be done not only with vocabulary, but it can be done also with writing texts and reinforcing them when writing in in other languages, for example. And I think that's really important because I, I think that we often assume that children will automatically make those connections between languages and see that there are similarities between languages. For example, you know, verb tenses, relative clauses, discourse writing, gender agreement, compound words, like you just said. We, you know, as adults, we know that, okay, you've got all of these language domains in most languages, but children don't necessarily see that even the cognate words, especially the young kids, like you said, hospital, hospital, it's very similar, but some children don't even realize it because it doesn't sound the same until they start to see it in print. They might not even, you know, realize that it's a very similar word. So would translate pedagogical translanguaging then um, encourage educators to raise children's awareness of how languages are similar and of course how they differ? Is that kind of part of the work that um, that is, is done when we're talking about pedagogical translanguaging? Yes, and it's reinforcing. For example, what is happening sometimes is that if you have, um, you are 
teaching how to write, I don't know, a text, a narrative text to tell a story. And uh, you do it in one language, but then you have a different textbook in the other language and it's done perhaps several months later, uh, even if the level is not the same, but perhaps the instructions are not the same either. So if you coordinate what you are doing in one language and you reinforce that what you teach in one language, because there will be slight differences, but you know, the way you tell a story in French and English or in Basque, Spanish and English is not that different. We are not talking about completely different cultures. And so if the way you have to, the structure, the organization of what you are going to say can be taught at the same time in both languages, even if, of course, we want the final product to be a text that is only in French, only in English, only in Basque, only in Spanish. Yeah, thank you for, for clarifying that. Now, in an article that you wrote with your colleague, Dr. Gorter, back in 2017, called Minority Languages and Sustainable Translanguaging, Threat or Opportunity. And for the listeners, I will put any resources that we talk about, I'll put the link in the show notes at theparleypodcast.com. And this is an open access article. Anyone can access it. You introduce five guiding principles for sustainable translanguaging, specifically for regional minority languages. Could you tell us a little bit more about those five guiding principles? Sure. The idea is, I think that it is important to see the different, the different ways translanguaging is used. Because sometimes uh, we can see, for example, that in the U.S., it is very common to use translanguaging in a way that is a kind of liberation of the way or trying to legitimate the way um, Hispanic speakers use language, that it is not standard, it's neither standard Spanish nor standard English, right? It is. It has the number of speakers and, and the use of resources from... Uh, both languages is very common, and it is a kind of legitimization of um, the use of these languages and, and trying to, let's say, to fight that the, this type of language practice should be accepted at school. It goes in that direction in some cases. Okay, what happens if we do that with a small language like Basque? What we know, I mean, is as clear as that. I mean, the big fish will eat the small fish. Basque will become a kind of mixture. Spanish will be Spanish in our context. I mean, Spanish in our context is very strong. So it will be Spanish, standard Spanish. But the language that will suffer by using lots of terms from, from Spanish, lots of structures, will be the minority language. So it depends on the context how um, if you legitimate the use of uh, a kind of mixture of both languages, what you will do is that the small language will disappear. So we were reflecting a lot, um, Dergorter and I, on this, and, and we formulated these principles because we think that translanguaging, yes, but it has to be sustainable. I go back here to the idea of a balance between using resources from and different languages, and on the other hand, making sure that you are not putting the minority language into danger. 
So um, the principles, the first is to design, and we find this the most important, to design breathing spaces for using the minority language. The idea is very clear. Not everything can be translanguaging. We can use resources from other languages in class. We can plan to use these resources to link old knowledge to new knowledge. But we need spaces where only the target language is used. And this we call breathing spaces, where the target language can breathe and can be used just where only the target language is used. In, in our case, in our context, that will be Basque. And, um, but it could be also English as a foreign language or French and so on, depending on, on the class. Another point is to develop the need to use the minority language through translanguaging. This is an interesting point that if we translate everything, for example, in a bilingual school, if we say, okay, everything is in two languages, everything uh, is explained in, if we have a meeting with parents in two languages, then we are getting into, okay, why do you need to learn the minority? So what we see that is happening in some cases, and we think that that could be a good idea, is that you lose something if you are not bilingual. So if you don't understand both languages, not everything is repeated, not everything is translated, and you are losing, you are having gaps in the information somehow, so that at least you encourage people to be able at least to understand uh, both languages, in, in our case with Basque and Spanish at meetings and so on. Number three will be to use resources from um, multilingual resources, and this is what I had explained already before of, and you know, if they know in vocabulary, writing, and so on. Principle number three is the idea of language awareness, of developing language awareness. Students have to be aware of the situation of the languages. They have to, one of the ways we do that that works quite well is also by uh, taking pictures of the linguistic landscape of text they see, students see on the street. They take pictures and then they analyze and discuss the languages they see and so on in class. And they see the, the status of the different languages, why it's important to protect languages, to learn languages, to use minority languages, and so on. And another point is to link spontaneous translanguaging to pedagogical activities. Here what we see, and uh, you also mentioned that mm, you can use resources from different languages when talking informally at home or whatever that we all do. And one of the ways I think is important is that, of course, that's okay. That's a good idea. You communicate in a more whatever, natural, efficient way if you do that. But it is important that the students are aware of the, what they need in, in one context and what is, needed, what is needed in different contexts. So, for example, you can use that language, but perhaps you can say, okay, let's look at one of your texts. Uh, when you are texting, let's look at what you, you are doing and let's see how you do that for another context in a formal way and then how 
if you are using resources from different languages, you are translanguaging in a spontaneous way, but perhaps if it is formal, of course, in most cases, you don't want that um, uh, translanguaging. So how would you do that if you change the context? So it's a, it's a way to work with, to say, okay, we, of course, we want translanguaging. We see many advantages, but we have to be protecting the minority languages as well. Absolutely. Thank you for listing those five guiding principles. And I like how you talked about, uh, you know, the big fish will eat the small fish. And I think that that is a, a real legitimate fear that a lot of our educators have. And um, absolutely, I think creating the space, the breathing space, and I like how you've even, you know, made it a living thing, you know, we have to let it breathe, we have to give it that the students the opportunity to, to use the minority language. Um, now, what you know, you talk about language awareness, and I think that that is something that, again, uh, at least for the most part in Canada, educators again take that for take it for granted that students know that the minority language um, is at risk, it is vulnerable, and that we need to protect it. And and I don't think that students really know that until much later in their life. You know, especially the young students when they're four or five, just getting to school, they don't know that minorities or languages have different statuses. And so, um, you know, I think it is important to tell students and to explain to them, all right, you know, there you've got different languages and some are minority languages and some you'll hear all over. You don't really need to, to think about it. Um, so, it, you know, it, that's, that's, I think a really important point. And I'm, I'm glad that it's one of those, those five guiding principles. So that's the language awareness piece. One question that educators often ask me is, okay, What's the difference then between language awareness and metalinguistic awareness? Uh, language awareness is to be aware about languages. I mean, we have used also, apart from uh, being aware, for example, about the situation of Basque, that students get to know a bit about the situation of Basque, we have used also uh, this opportunity to be so that teachers and other students are aware about the language situation, other home languages and the language situation of other uh, immigrant groups, for example, because of course, apart from the languages in the curriculum, we also have uh, many, quite a diversity of home languages. And uh, we have done, uh, for example, things like um, a linguistic biography that the students write um, about the languages in their family, grandparents, the languages they used at school in some cases if they have come from another country, but also they realize about the languages if they, with Basque, if they speak, uh, if their grandparents spoke Basque already or not, and if they, they have learned, and it's to be aware of the languages, and then of course you can go into the status of the different languages, about the different situations with that, but that will be language awareness. Metalinguistic awareness, is uh, to be aware of the way language works as a system more, even though language is not only a system, it's a lot more than that. But I mean, if I realize that um, compound words uh, have the same structure in Basque and English, I'm getting, um, I'm developing the, I'm developing awareness about the language itself. The language, uh, the language structures, 
uh, about vocabulary, about uh, the way discourse can be, uh, a text can be organized and how it can be organized in different languages. All that will be working with the language itself, not so much about the language. That would be the main difference. And don't teachers already teach that? So when they're teaching about, you know, the structure of a sentence or whether teaching kids how to write a narrative text, aren't they, you know, what's the difference between teaching about the different parts of a sentence, for example, and making students aware <laughs> of, you know, metalinguistically aware, I think, is different than knowing. Yeah, well, I think that it is, it is the basic idea will be reflecting. If you reflect about how something works, and that is what we have had a lot with uh, uh, students' feedback when uh, we have implemented uh, pedagogical translanguaging in some schools, it's kind of, oh, I never realized that this structure is similar in this language and the other language, for example. How is the reflection, the working uh, on how the language works, not just taking it for granted and going on to the next exercise, this is right, this is wrong, but reflecting on it. That would be the basic idea. Thank you. I often give the example of my, my husband. He, he's a great speaker. Uh, it just comes so naturally to him. But if I ask him, do you know what the parts of a sentence are? And do you know what a relative clause is? And do you, he has no idea, right? He's never really thought about how languages work. He, he knows how to use language. He's very good at it. But he's never really reflected about it. And I think that that's really important. That's when children can make those connections between the languages that they speak and how they're different and how they're similar. And, oh, I already know how to do that. I, I have that knowledge already. Before we continue, I wanted to let the listeners know that Parlay Podcast has partnered up with MedBridge, a continuing education platform for healthcare professionals which includes educational resources for school-based speech-language pathologists. In fact, you can find six courses on second language acquisition. If you use the promo code PARLAY, P-A-R-L-E, you can save up to $175 with this code. So check it out. And also check out all of the resources that I'm talking about today with my guest at theparleypodcast.com and click on the Parley Podcast icon where you'll find all of the episodes from this podcast. Um, all right, so you, you briefly talked about how you did study pedagogical translanguaging in the Basque Country and how students you know, were, were aware of how languages work. Can you tell us a little bit about more, more about some of the results of your studies? How, how is pedagogical translanguaging perceived perhaps by teachers? Um, you know, is it working in the minority context in which you are? Yeah, I think it's working, but it is true that there is this fear on part of teachers. I mean, it is new in the sense that uh, to say, okay, this, the language here was Basque, which is the minority language, and now I am asked to include and to make some relationships between Basque Spanish and English, for example. So there was that fear that will this be good for Basque? Because as you said before, uh, we've been working very hard to 
to have Pascal as the main language of instruction. Uh, we've been working very hard for a language that is a minority that was has a, a very hard history that it was even uh, forbidden in public spaces until the 70s, we can say the 1970s. I mean, it's not... It's, it's, a long time now, but still not that long for a language. I mean, for people to make an effort to use more Basque. And now you come here to tell me that I have to use some Spanish or English in in the class. I mean, there was an, an, a lot of um, fear, I must say. And also the idea, not only fear about the Basque language, but also the idea that you have to use only one language in the class is, I think, very strong also in uh, for teachers of English. And yeah, it is quite strong. So there was a lot of fear, but in the, the results were good, have been good, and the teachers were realized that, okay, you can have a little bit of Spanish or English. I mean, even if we always have also the, if it is a Basque uh, class, uh, Basque language or, or a class of um, science or, or history through Basque, the basic language is, is Basque there, but we use resources from other languages. Uh, but they also realize that what you do a bit less in one class if it is coordinated, that's the way it should be with the other class, then you are doing some Basque also in the Spanish class or in the English class. So in, in the end, um, they were happy with the, with the results and they didn't see it as a threat for, for Basque. And what we saw also is that there were good results in metalinguistic awareness, that the students were more aware of, of the... Uh, uh, of the resources they had already as multilinguals. And I like how you use the, you know, some of the terms that are used in the field of translanguaging is this notion of hard versus soft boundaries between languages. And I think that, you know, like you said, it, we don't just use the majority language when we're teaching in the minority language, it goes both ways. We can also use the minority language when we're teaching in the majority language or the more dominant language. So can you just elaborate a little bit on, on what does that mean? Soft versus hard language boundaries? Yeah. Well, soft and hard in the sense that if you have hard boundaries between languages is that you are not allowing to use any of the resources that you could have because you know other languages, because other languages have been taught at school, you are not using them because the boundaries between the languages you have recited to have very hard boundaries. When they are soft boundaries is that, okay, they are boundaries. We are not going to say anything goes, anything, because that will go against the minority language. But we can make the boundaries between languages softer so that if we need some elements from the other language, because that will help the development of multilingual competence, then we use them. Uh, another thing related to what you said is that uh, what, some of the feedback about the three languages was also interesting about using trans, pedagogical translanguaging and it was interesting about Basque because some teachers said mm, it has been good that Basque has been at the same level as the other languages. 
kind of we are doing, we are using resources also from Basque to learn English or to progress in, in learning Spanish, even though Spanish, the level is usually higher, but uh, that somehow the status of Basque is as the other languages. Because, of course, Basque, there is a lot of effort to recover, but the, you know, teachers are aware, of course, that it is a minority language, that it doesn't have the same status as, as the other languages. Yes, and here in Canada, um, children are in instructed solely in French in the French medium schools until grade four. And in grade four is when we introduce English. And that's when children learn to read in English. Well, they don't have to learn to read from scratch. They can use all of the knowledge that they have acquired in French, the minority language. And really, they're already reading in English <laughs> on their own. And so I like that, how in this case, everything that they've learned in French in the minority language is then used to teach literacy in the majority language. And so That's it. children are really seeing the, well, I, and I don't know that they're seeing it. I think we need to raise their awareness. We need to explicitly highlight that, see what you've learned in the minority language and in the French language has transferred over for the most part. There are some differences, of course, but to the English language. Now, one difference that I'd like to highlight before um, we um, come to a conclusion is that, like you've said, Basque is spoken mainly in the Basque country and maybe in some of the surrounding countries. But I know that, like you said, you, you've had a lot of success using pedagogical translanguaging in some of the Basque schools. And I just want to, for, for the Canadian listeners, for them to remember that French is an international language. It is spoken by millions of people. And so if you're able to find success using pedagogical translanguaging with a language that is much more of a minority language when we're comparing the two, then I think that there is a lot of hope in using pedagogical translanguaging for a language such as French that is spoken, you know, in over a hundred languages or countries. And is it actually one of the, I think French and English are the only two languages that are taught on all five continents. And so it, you know, it is a minority language, but it's also an international language. And so that's not necessarily the case for, for Basque. So I think that's important to remember. Um, of course, well, it, is, it is a very important difference because, I mean, that's why the worry in a case of a minority language like Basque is that if we don't protect Basque, it will just disappear, which is a completely different situation from a big international language such as French, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we forget that sometimes we're stuck, you know, because it is a minority language here in Canada outside of Quebec, um, it doesn't mean that it's not spoken by so many. Actually, there's, um, you know, some people are even saying that by 2050, uh, French will be among the top three languages spoken in the world because of the increasing population uh, in certain African countries where French is spoken. So, um, well, I'd like to conclude by saying, well, thank you very much for agreeing to um, be a guest on the Parley podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think that all of the work that you have done um, in the Basque country can definitely be used and applied. And I like the five guiding principles. I think that many minority countries 
or languages can can use those five guiding principles as well. Um, do you have any final remarks or anything that uh, any take home messages that you you would like to add? Well, I think that it is important that pedagogical translanguaging is kind of tailor made. That you cannot say. It depends on the grade, it depends on the situation, it depends on the language, and you always have to respect the pedagogies that are being used in the in the school. So it has to go little by little. It has to go adapting to, to the context. I mean, it's nothing that you say, okay, it's the same thing for any place. It has to be discussed and adapted to, to the context. Absolutely. And I just remembered one question that I wanted to ask. I, it's a question that I often get. Do educators need a lot of special training in order to use, you know, the pedagogical translanguaging strategies? They may need some work with um, preparing some materials. More than the idea, I think, is quite clear. I don't think it, you, need, you need some training to understand the reasons why this is done and to get the general idea. And then, of course, if you are going to prepare materials in a different way, you will need uh, some work there. And we know that teachers are usually very busy, and, and but we need, uh, you need some work there, yes. So, you know, more awareness, um, thinking about languages differently, and then, of course, Mm -hmm. time to prepare the material that is needed to, to That's teach. It. Well, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to uh, reading, you know, what the work that you publish. And I wanted to mention to the listeners that um, a new document was recently published in December 2021 by Cambridge University Press titled Pedagogical Translanguaging. And this also is open access. And it really gives you a lot of information on what translanguaging is and how uh, it can be used by educators. Um, so I will also put a link to that resource in the show notes at theparleypodcast.com. So anyone who is interested in learning more about pedagogical translanguaging, this is a fabulous resource. So thank you. And thank you very much for making a lot of your work uh, open access. I think it's important for educators to have access to um, the research that is being conducted. Another very useful resource that might interest some listeners is a YouTube video called Let's Make the Most of Multilingualism. It's about five minutes and it gives a brief introduction to the notion of pedagogical translanguaging. So, you know, if you're hearing about this for the very first time, this might be a great video to take a listen to. So thank you. Escarricasco. Mexico Coop. Mm, gracias. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>